people that uh, kind of got the Saturday night visit from the Spirit of God saying, no, not that, this. And so uh, I did that last week and I'm going to do that this week. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 3. Great story. And I'm just going to touch on one line of the story, really. But I want to read the whole story to you. Um, Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, he asked to receive alms, but Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have... I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And this this line is so poignant, people. Listen to this. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And And his name, by faith in his name, he made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Here's the big therefore. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And God, may the words of my mouth, And the thoughts, meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. It's the only only time that phrase appears in the Bible. But I love it. Repent, turn from your sins, that your sins may be blotted out. Turn to God, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And this morning, I wanna, I'm, I'm going to give you a history lesson. And, and some of you who've been around the firehouse have heard me give this history lesson before. It's one of my favorite lessons, one of my favorite stories. It's a lesson about times of refreshing, especially over about the last three or 400 years, and concerning our nation, concerning America, and times of refreshing that have come upon the world, but also that have greatly impacted and shaped this country. And so uh, I want to talk about times of refreshing. And the reason I want to talk about uh, the reason I want to kind of give this history of revival is because I believe, uh, as many prophetic voices have been saying, that there's an awakening coming to America. And dear ones, we need an awakening. Uh, there is a spiritual lethargy in our land. 
Um, perhaps, maybe it's because I'm in the Pacific Northwest, or maybe it's just because it is the, it is the attitude all over the land. But I think in, in my 30 years as a Christian, I haven't experienced this level of lethargy, uh, of, of dullness spiritually um, in the land. And it's often at those times that God pours out his spirit and there is an awakening. I believe this land is, in, in, is due for an awakening, that people have been calling out for an awakening, that many people have become discouraged because it hasn't happened. But I want to tell you, do not become discouraged. Do not stop praying. Uh, just continue to press in for the awakening. And I believe the awakening is going to be so big that it is going to lead to a reformation. That it will lead to a reformation. And it will set America back on a strong course for years to come. And that's my heart's desire. Uh, but I want to tell you, I want to start uh, after the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation restored some powerful truths to the body of Christ that were being ignored. Justification by, by faith, um, God's grace uh, through faith. That scripture alone, not, uh, not you know, centuries of church tradition, that scripture was our authority. Uh, that Jesus Christ alone, not the saints and not, uh, not merits, but that Jesus Christ alone is the source of our hope and salvation. And these, these three great truths were restored to the church through Martin Luther and, and those who followed him, and Protestantism emerged out of this. But like, like all moves, it wasn't all good. And what happened is the church entered a stage of real theological dispute. And it wasn't just Protestants arguing with Catholics. Then Protestants began to split hairs and talk about this and that and the other thing and began to try to get down to the minutia of every theological detail. And they began to argue. And then secular kings and princes decided to use, because what better, what better weapon to use than God to get people to fight for your cause? And Europe was thrown into bloody wars, religious wars, that, that really scandalized the name of Christ because people were arguing how much water or what age that somebody should be baptized with, and, and other issues. And in the midst of this, out of this move that restored these profound truths, then there came this, this almost disease over Europe. And people were tired, and they were persecuted, and they were, they were just fatigued. And there was, a, there was a rich Christian, and if you don't think good things can come from rich Christians, yes, they can. There was a rich Christian, and I love his name. He's my, this is my favorite name in church history. Nicholas von Zinzendorf. All right? That's right up there. I like the Z name in the Bible, too, Zerubbabel. If you've never spoken in tongues, just say Zerubbabel ten times really fast, and uh, you'll probably start speaking in tongues. Try it. But uh, Nicholas von Zinzendorf. And uh, Nicholas von Zinzendorf saw the fatigue of the people, and he set up a place called Herrnut. And he set it up as a refuge for battered and persecuted Christians. And these Christians weren't being battered and persecuted tragically by the state. They were being battered and persecuted by each other. And as he set this place up, many people fled there. But, you know, they started fighting amongst themselves and arguing and bickering. And Nicholas von Zinsdorf said, no, enough. He said, we're going to set aside all disputes and we are going to start praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they did that, actually, for about 100 years. And they were called the Moravians. 
And the Moravian, and all of a sudden, as they began to pray instead of argue, all of a sudden, a little, heaven fell on earth in that place. And there, was a, and there was a move of God and a holiness among these people that set about, that really began to launch the first great awakening and the modern missionary movement. That was in the height of, uh, of Europeans kidnapping Africans and the slave trade. There were Moravians who actually sold themselves into slavery because they said nobody else will reach, will reach these slaves for Christ if we don't. And so young men, before their 20th birthday, sold their lives into slavery simply to reach these African slaves for Christ. And it was these Moravians who were on a mission trip to Georgia who impacted... Uh, a young British clergyman, very rigorous. His name was John Wesley. And Wesley was, oh, he was, he wanted to do so many good works, and he struggled so hard to, to earn God's favor and to work hard for God. And Wesley was on his way to Georgia as well, on his way from England to the Americas uh, to, uh, to reach the Native Americans. He was going to be a missionary. And in the crossing... He crossed the sea of the Atlantic Ocean with the Moravians, and they came upon some some tempestuous weather, and uh, the the boat was being tossed, and uh, Wesley began to fear for his life, and he panicked. And the Moravians were simply praying, and they had perfect peace. And Wesley writes in his journals, he said, you know, lo, I I go to save the Indians, but who will save me? Why don't I have what the Moravians have? Wesley... He basically, his, uh, his mission to Georgia was a failure. He came back somewhat in disgrace, but he was impressed again on his way back. The same thing happened. They came upon some bad seas. The Moravians were at perfect peace. Wesley was stressing out, and he, and he just, he began to seek out these Moravians, and he, see, he sought out Peter Bowler, one of the leaders of the Moravians in England, and Peter Bowler said, John, you have works, but you have no faith. You don't have faith. You're trying to earn God's love. You're trying to earn your forgiveness. You're trying, to, you're trying to climb up a ladder of works. And Peter Bowler told John Wesley, you need to start preaching faith until you have it. John Wesley went to a Bible study. Good things can happen at Bible studies. He went to a Bible study, and at the Bible study, they were studying the book of Galatians. And they were using Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians. And while somebody was simply reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians, John Wesley says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I knew that Christ had died for my sins. Yes, even mine. And Wesley began to preach the gospel of grace through faith. And as he did, thousands were saved. Wesley was an Anglican clergyman, and he would preach in in Anglican churches, and his preaching was so rigorous and so in people's face about their need to come to Christ that he got kicked out of every respectable Anglican church in England. And his friend, George Whitfield, the greatest preacher of the 18th century, was having great success preaching in the fields, which Wesley considered to be irreverent. But Whitfield told Wesley, you need to go to the poor people, and you need to preach in the open air and preach in the fields. And Wesley wrote in his journal, I consented to do what was most vile, 
And I began to preach the glad tidings of Christ in the highways and the byways. And thus the first great awakening was born. At the same time in the American colonies, there was a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards, perhaps America's greatest theologian. And Jonathan Edwards began to preach uh, profoundly on the grace of God and the need for repentance. And the Holy Spirit fell in New England, and the Great Awakening began to happen in America and in England simultaneously. And times of refreshing came from the Lord. And, I be- and, and you know, a lot of times we look at American history and think, oh, people back then were so much more religious, they were so much holier, they were so much more Christian. Not true. At the time of the First Great Awakening, New England was filled with debauchery. You know, anybody that would, you know, eventually have a football team like the Patriots, you can understand that. (laughs) Thank you. And so, it was a very, the colonies, listen, the colonies, some people came to the colonies, like the Puritans, to avoid religious persecution, and started Christian uh, colonies. But a lot of people by this time came to the colonies, Why? To get money, to make, get rich, to get England off their backs, because they were they were they were criminals or close to criminals. A lot of people fled to the colonies, and so it wasn't like the colonies were filled with nothing but you know prayerful Puritans and people fleeing religious persecution. Um, it was a motley crew in the Americas, and the first Great Awakening transformed this country right before the Revolution. And really, without that first great awakening, you probably wouldn't have had the America, America probably would not have been born in the way it was born. In England, the first great awakening so transformed England that they probably avoided a revolution in England. Because John Wesley preached well to the poor, that the poor began to become the middle class. Why? Because their lives were transformed and they developed a stronger work ethic, They stopped spending their money on alcohol and prostitutes and started saving their money. They started investing and educating their children. And England was transformed by this first great awakening, as was the birth of the United States of America. Times of refreshing from the Lord. George Whitfield preached both in England and in America during the first great awakening. Probably the greatest preacher, as I said, of the 18th century. Um... If Benjamin Franklin ever converted to Christ, and there's good reason to believe that he did toward the end of his life, it was because of his friend, George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a great preacher, and Benjamin Franklin was his friend. Uh, as you know, Benjamin Franklin, a lot of his life was a deist, but, uh, but, but Whitfield would try to convince Franklin of his need for Christ. And Whitfield was, was always sponsoring orphanages um, throughout the colonies, and he had an orphanage in Georgia. And like all good preachers, he was always raising money for the poor. So Whitfield would preach, and he'd preach Christ, but then he would take up an offering for the orphanages in Georgia. And, Frank, and Whitfield was such a good preacher that he always talked Franklin out of his money. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin wrote in his journals, uh, I, I will not, I, I, I'm going to hear my friend George preach, will not give him any money tonight. And came back and he said, he emptied my wallet again. <laughs> Until finally, in one of his journal entries, he says, going to hear my friend George preach tonight, taking no money with me. (laughs) In the the 19th century, America was born 
We began, America began to spread across the frontier. This group that John Wesley had founded became known as the Methodists. That was a name, by the way, that was given to them in derision because they were so methodical and disciplined in their approach to studying the Bible in small groups and holding one another accountable that people said, oh, they're just Methodists. They're methodical. Wesley took a name that was given to them in derision, and he, and he turned it and said, you bet we are. And so, uh, and so this group was born, and, and they began, along with the early Presbyterians and Baptists, to begin to spread the gospel across the frontier. And you had revivals at places like Cane Ridge in Kentucky, which were famous. They would, they would ha that's where these camp meetings, these outside camp meetings began to start. And the Holy Spirit would fall. And, and there, there's one author, one, one journalist who went to see the Cane Ridge revival. And he said, he said, the Spirit fell and the women were shaking so violently under the presence of the Spirit. He said that their hair came out of their, uh, their pins, came out of their pins and it was making the sound of a whip. I don't, how, I don't know how fast your hair has to go. It has to exceed the speed of sound, right? To make the crack, yeah. the crack. That their hair was cracking like whips. Uh, this journalist was so afraid, he ran out into the forest to get away from it. But later, he himself was converted and became a Methodist preacher. And you have these great revivals, these frontier revivals across the country. And yes, it was messy. And yes, there were charlatans. And yes, not everybody who, got, who had encounters with God and experiences stayed that converted. And yet, the frontier was shaped by revivals. But New England began to grow cold again until a, 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 a law clerk by the name of Charles Finney received the gospel of Christ. And he began to preach, and the second great awakening was born. And for the second time in her young history, America experienced a revival and a renewal of, of, of Christian influence and times of refreshing came across the land. And these times of refreshing prepared America, just like the first Great, Ameri great Awakening prepared America to be born, the second, great America, the second Great Awakening prepared America to seek justice on behalf of the slaves. And the abolitionists began to rise up out of this second Great Awakening. And Christians began to realize the inconsistency of owning your brother. How this could not be. And they began to recognize the injustice of kidnapping people from one continent and, in, and, and putting them in a lifetime of slavery, stripping them away from their families, taking all rights away from them, and simply using them for the source of greed. And in England, people like William Wilberforce, the author of Amazing Grace, John Newton, began to rise up against the slave trade. In America, for a long time, there had been a movement against the slave trade. In England, the transformation happened peacefully. In America, it happened through a horrible, bloody war. But it was that second great awakening that awakened people's hearts and consciences to the need for transformation, because awakening brings cultural change. It, the first great awakening helped birth this country. The second great awakening helped rid this country of a, of a grave injustice. Times of refreshing came from the Lord. Some people say around the turn of the century was the third great awakening. Whether it was the great awakening or not, uh, we, can, we, can, we, can reflect, we can withhold that term and say the, we're waiting for the third great awakening. But there was a move of God around the turn of the century. 
The great, uh, the great evangelist D.L. Moody uh, began to preach in Chicago and New York and other places. D.L. Moody was a successful pastor and a successful preacher, but there were two little old ladies in his church. Watch out for the little old ladies who pray. Watch out for the little old ladies who pray. We don't have any old ladies in our church yet, but you know, in a few years, some of you might reach that category. Then you can start praying. Start praying, and they started praying for D.L. Moody and said, "You need more. You need more of the Spirit." And he said, "I'm fine." I'm doing just fine, thank you very much. But they said, no, we're going to pray for you. Brother, you need more Holy Ghost. And D.L. Moody had an encounter with the Holy Spirit one day in New York City where he said uh, the overwhelming love of God came at him in wave after wave after wave until he finally had to ask God to stay his hand because he was afraid he was going to die. What a way to go. Death by the love of God. And, and all of a sudden, Moody preached the same sermons, same notes, same Bible. But all of a sudden, people started coming to Christ. At the same time, over in England, Charles Spurgeon was preaching. And he was known as the prince of all preachers, and, and a revival broke out in England. Charles Spurgeon and Dwight Moody met. Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars. Dwight Moody was definitely opposed to such a practice. Dwight Moody was very plump. Charles Spurgeon was opposed to such a thing. They met each other. They didn't like each other. But God used them both marvelously. So God can use a plump man and God can use a cigar-smoking man. And I suppose if you do both, you get a double anointing. In 1906, a, uh, a son of a slave couldn't read, couldn't write by the name of William Seymour, Papa Seymour. He heard, he heard about another man in his teaching named William Parham who began teaching that that God wanted to baptize people with the Holy Spirit and that the sign of being baptized with the Holy Spirit was speaking in tongues. And that in Kansas, a woman named Agnes Osmond had spoken tongues as these people sought out the, this fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. And William Parham began to preach this doctrine. And William Seymour began to listen to this doctrine. He couldn't even attend because of segregation laws. He couldn't attend Parham, or Charles Parham, excuse me, Charles Parham's class in, in Houston, Texas. But Parham allowed him to sit outside near an open window and listen to his lectures. Papa Seymour moved to the then young city of Los Angeles, California. And he began to preach this doctrine. And he began to preach it at a small little building on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And, and the Pentecostal revival was born. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit fell and there was prophecy and speaking in tongues and healings. And for a short season, the color line, that was one of the most racist periods in American history. And for a short season, the color line came down. And whites and blacks and men and women were, were worshiping and praising and leading and preaching and teaching all together. And heaven came to earth. And at the same time, again, across the sea in Wales, a young man by the name of Evan Roberts was hit by the Spirit of God, and he began to preach. And revival broke out in Wales, and the, the Welsh revival was born. And some of the hymns that maybe you grew up loving came out of that revival. Music always comes out of moves of God. And this Welsh revival was born, and it, it is said that in Wales during that period of time, the only job policemen had was directing horse traffic to churches on Sunday. Crime was gone. 
Their biggest job was just directing traffic. And horses had to be retrained because their riders used to always swear and cuss with their commands. And their language got cleaned up and the horses didn't know what the riders were saying anymore. And this revival was born, both, both in America and overseas. And Pentecostalism was born. And along with the Second Great Awakening and Pentecostalism, that helped launch the modern, the modern uh, missions movement around the world. And so uh, miss, world missions began to be born. I want to tell you, since 1906, in the last 110 years or so, tongue-speaking prophesying, miracle-believing, hand-raising, hallelujah Christians have gone from zero to over half a million. That is the fastest-growing people movement in the history of the world. And, and it's a people movement, it's a revolution that has happened without one gun being raised, without one shot being fired. Today, as we speak, dear ones, you might look around this room and go, well, what, we got 30 people in here? What kind of movement is this? Let me tell you something. Today, as we speak, all around the world, Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America, this gospel that we proclaim is growing leaps and bounds. And it's primarily growing leaps and bounds through people who believe similar to what those early Pentecostals believed, that God is alive today and he still works in miraculous ways. And people can still pray and speak in tongues and lay hands on the sick and see the sick be healed. People can still prophesy and speak forth the words of God. There is such a thing as demons, and we can kick them out of people. And all over the world, this gospel is spreading. And Pentecostalism was born and began to take shape in America. The mainline religions who had grown so powerful re utterly rejected Pentecostalism and adopted really a form of theological liberalism. But a hundred years later, Pentecostals are going strong and the mainline religions are gasping for their last breath of air. However, God did not abandon the mainline religions. There was another time of refreshing. Late 50s, early 60s. Anybody, remember, anybody know what God did then? Well, he was, the Branham was a part of that, yeah, the, William Branham was a part of that whole 1950s Pentecostal healing movement, which I should mention. Uh, you had William Branham, you had uh, uh, Amy Simple McPherson, uh, T.L. Osborne came out of that, Oral Roberts, uh, uh, Coe, Allen, A.A. Allen, a lot of these great healing revivals came out of the 40s and 50s. But then in the 1960s, all of a sudden, Something started to happen to mainline preachers. Yeah, and the charismatic movement was born. An Anglican preacher, an Episcopal preacher, excuse me, Episcopal by the name of Dennis Bennett in Van Nuys, California, in one of the, or no, Pasadena, I think, in one of the largest Episcopalian churches down there, most respectable churches down there, began to speak in tongues. The day he announced it to a congregation, to his congregation, a fight broke out in the parking lot. Within a week, he had to resign. But there was, an, there, was a, there was an Episcopal bishop. You know where? Right here, Pacific Northwest, Ballard. 
who got a hold of Dennis Bennett and said, I've got a declining, dying little church up in Ballard called St. Luke's. He says, I think they need what you have. Will you come and start and, 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 and do your ministry here? And Dennis Bennett came to St. Luke's in Ballard. I've made a pilgrimage there. I've gone in that room and prayed. There's an old man who was there for that revival in the 60s and 70s. He's, a, he's an old guy, and he sees angels. And he'll just kind of walk in, and you'll be praying. He goes, there's one over there. You go, what? He goes, yeah, there's an angel over there. He's watching you pray. There's one back there. There's a big one over there. You're trying to pray, and he's, telling where all the, he's just telling you where all the angels are in the room. He says, yeah, I've been seeing angels in this place for a long time. And all of a sudden, mainline Christians started speaking in tongues and healing and lifting their hands and worshiping God. And times of refreshing came from the Lord during the tumultuous 60s. Times of refreshing came from the Lord. And goodness, it even came to the Catholics. The Pentecostals were, how could the Catholics, they prayed to Mary, how could they, how could they speak in tongues? And how could these Presbyterians and Episcopalians speak in tongues? They smoke and drink wine. How can that happen? It was happening. You know, God is just not into our boxes. He's bigger than our boxes. And in the 1970s, how many, how many of you are old enough to remember what life was like in the late 60s and early 70s? America was a very tumultuous place. There were, there were, you had the civil rights movement, you had protests, you had violence in the streets, and all authority was being questioned. And there were hippies, and they were leaving home, and they were doing drugs, and they were living on beaches, and they were, they were promoting free love, and oh, the age of Aquarius was upon us. And there was a pastor in Southern California who didn't like the hippies. He thought they were dirty and smelly and didn't respect authority. And this pastor had a wife who looked past all those things and saw God's heart. And she would walk the beaches of Southern California and pray for the hippies. She went to her husband and said, you need to join me and we need to pray for these people. He said, those people don't need prayer, they need a bath. And she said, Chuck, behave yourself, come pray. And Chuck Smith the founder of Calvary Chapel, began to pray with his wife for the hippies on the beaches of California. And there was a preacher hippie by the name of Lonnie Frisbee who got Jesus, and he began to preach to these hippies. And they began to come to Jesus because they realized in all that they were trying to find, they found in him. And they started flooding conservative Chuck Smith's Calvary, small little Calvary Chapel church in Southern California. And they would come in barefoot and slimy and dirty. And the, the, the trustees had just approved new carpet in the church. And these hippies came in and they were ruining the carpet in the church. <sighs> dirty hippies. So the trustees went to Chuck Smith and they said, these hippies are ruining the carpet. We just put this carpet in. You need to do something about this i.e., tell those hippies to leave or clean up. Chuck Smith said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. The problem will be solved in a week. The trustees went away glad until they got to church next Sunday and found all the carpet torn out of the church. And because of that, God blessed Calvary Chapel and boomed into this huge worldwide thing that it is now. Times of refreshing. And the Jesus movement was born. 
And people like me got saved because of the Jesus movement. Times of refreshing from the Lord. Because I was on a high school campus just going nowhere. Grew up in a mainline religion, grew up Catholic, but had no real encounter with Jesus. And these hippies started coming on campus from Young Life. And they took it seriously when the Bible said you got to be like Jesus. They had long hair and wore sandals. And they'd come on campus and they'd invite us to club. And the club was cool because I went with my sister and she was a cheerleader. And she went in a car with all her cheerleading friends. And I got to go to, I got to, go to this place where cool people hung out with three cheerleaders as a freshman in high school. This was the best religion I'd ever heard of. But they tricked me with their long hair and their guitars and their fun and the cheerleaders. They told me about Jesus. And I was a product of that Jesus movement, of those Jesus hippies. Times of refreshing from the Lord. Out of the Calvary Chapel movement, there was a... You guys with me or are you getting bored? All right. So out of the Calvary Chapel movement... Uh, there, was a, there was a conservative evangelical church growth expert. He used to be a musician and a producer of music. He worked for the Righteous Brothers. He was their producer. And uh, his life was, was uh, falling apart. His marriage was falling apart. He was drinking. And uh, he and his wife in the 60s began to go to a Bible study at a friend's church, Quakers. And they went to a Quaker church, and they began to go to a Bible study. And in that Bible study, they both came to the Lord. This man remembers one day, he used to mock Christians. And he remembers one day in Southern California, he remembers a man wearing one of those sandwich boards. And on the front of the sandwich board, it said, I'm a fool for Christ. And he remembered thinking, you sure are. And then the guy walked by him, and on the back of the sandwich board, it said, whose fool are you? And through the ministry of this little Quaker church, this man gave his life to Christ. They gave him a Bible. He began to read the Bible. He was amazed by all the things that happened in the Bible. But he never saw them happening in this little church. And he would go to this church. He was a chain smoker at the time. He'd go to this church, and he was, he was amazed. He was a secular person. They didn't have ashtrays. This was back before, you know, they had non-smoking. And every place had an ashtray. He'd go into church. They didn't have ashtrays. He couldn't figure it out. He realized they didn't smoke in church. So he'd, he'd wait for the service to get out, and he'd, he'd run outside, and he'd begin to smoke. But he was reading his Bible, and he was becoming fascinated by his Bible. And nobody at the church really talked to him for a while. But finally, one, one Sunday, one of the elders came out and talked to him. And he said, have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? And, you know, he says, what does that mean? That sounds gross. I don't know. Then he began to question the elder. He says, well, when do, when do we get to do the stuff? And the elder said, what stuff? He goes, you know, the stuff in the big black book that you got me reading. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, you know, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. When do we get to do the stuff? And the elder looks at him and said, we don't do that anymore. And John Wimber looked back at the elder, one of my favorite lines. Nobody ever likes this line. I love this line. He looked back at that. He says, you mean for this I gave up drugs? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. But John Wimber stepped in line, and he stopped. Believe, he didn't believe in miracles then, and he just went along and began to help churches grow, and he, be, he was very successful analyzing 
the different demographics and all the things. That, and he would go and speak to churches and say, well, if you had a better parking lot and you had more lighting and you had more small groups, you know, your church would grow. And he began to church all, teach all these church growth principles. And what happened is his young, fresh faith began to fizzle. And his marriage was on the rocks again. And his health was deteriorating. And he was exhausted. And he was doing all this for God. And yet he wasn't feeling any fulfillment and exhausted on an airplane. He cried out to God one time and he said, God, I'm tired, I'm going to die, what should I do? And, and early in his Christian life he had heard the voice of God, but then he had been taught that that didn't happen anymore. But all of a sudden in his desperation he heard the voice of God again. And God said, John, I've seen your ministry. And for the rest of your life would you like to see mine? And his exhaustion, John Wimber said yes, and the vineyard... Uh, a, young, a young little group, uh, John Wimber, uh, began to lead and brought signs and wonders to the evangelical church through this vineyard movement. I was at Fuller Seminary when he was there. He was very transformative. Times of refreshing came from the Lord. New church music emerged. And through this vineyard movement in the 90s, Promise Keepers was born. Bill McCartney, not everybody knows this, the, the founder of Promise Keepers, uh, was a part of the vineyard in Boulder, Boulder Colorado. And, uh, and God began to call men to accountability. God began to call men to serve their families and love their wives and their children and get back together. And, it, and I remember at the church I pastored at the time, Promise Keepers made a huge impact in our church. I had a firefighter come into my office, good man. And on Sunday he said to me, Pastor, we need to talk. Now let me just tell you, in, in the annals of pastordom, when somebody on Sunday afternoon says, Pastor, we need to talk, it's hardly ever good news. Monday usually means he's going to chew you out because you preached the wrong sermon or you weren't nice to him or he found another church or whatever. You know, Pastor, we need to talk. Every pastor, when they hear that, they cringe. They go, oh boy, what's, you know, what am I going to get yelled at this time for, you know? So this guy, I really like this guy. He was new to the church. He was bringing energy. And I got the pastor, we need to talk. I go, oh no. Ruined my Sunday afternoon. Listen, if you need to talk to me, don't warn me. Just do it. You know, don't ruin Sunday. Just, 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 if you've got a barf on me, just do it, you know, quick. And really, if you, if you really need to leave, and, and you, you don't even have to barf on me. You can just go. Just, you know, you say, well, we're going somewhere else now. Okay. But now, pastor, we need to talk. All right. So I was dreading it. Guy comes into my office. Say, well, well, Richard, what's up? He says, I need to apologize. Great guy. It's like, for what? You know, you're here in church every Sunday. You help, you pray, you're supportive, you're encouraging. He says, I have not prayed for you and your family every day. And I have not supported you as I should. And from now on, I want to pray. I want you to tell me what your family needs and what you're... What, 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 what's going on in your kids' lives, and, and I'm, 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 I'm making a commitment now to pray for you every day. So this is the best pastor I need to talk conversation I've ever had. And I said, well, oh, Richard, here's what's going on with my kids. Thank you very much. And I said, what, what? He said, well, I went to this thing called Promise Keepers. Immediately, mental note, send men to Promise Keepers. Good thing. Times are refreshing. And I saw... I saw good men become God men. I, I saw, uh, how many of you are familiar with the Central Valley of California? It's a lot like Eastern Washington, okay? 
not a bunch of weak liberals. You know, we're talking, we're talking pickup driving, deer shooting kind of guys, right? Yeah, or they wannabes anyway. I, I remember going to a Promise Keepers, looking down a row of these kind of guys, macho guys. They're all crying because they're talking about loving your wives and kids better. They're all like looking around, making sure nobody's looking. It's like, we're all looking. <laughs> Times of refreshing. And God poured out his spirit in Toronto and Pensacola. I was at Pensacola. And a lot of people criticized those moves, but God was moving there. Yeah, they were except. Look at they're always excesses. There's always messes. You know, you want to have babies, you're going to have messes. New life is messy. Times of refreshing from the Lord. And dear ones, it's time. It's time for times of refreshing to be poured out. Poured out. And so... Uh, I came up here from California because I felt like the Lord said, I'm going to do something in the Pacific Northwest. I want you to plant power churches in the Pacific Northwest and the Western United States. I said, okay. I drug my wife up here so fast. Honey, we've got to get up here. We don't want to miss it. That's eight years ago. Like, well, we probably didn't have to move quite so fast. But maybe we did. I don't know what God's purposes and all of that was. But dear ones, I am praying for times of refreshing. Dutch, I heard Dutch Sheets, a uh, prophetic voice. Uh, Dan Merritt calls him the John Wayne of prophetic voices. Uh, he takes no not. Yeah, Dutch, Dutch, is, Dutch is not your touchy-feely pastor. He's not, you know, he's the kind of guy, if you came to him and said, oh, pastor, I'm struggling so much with my ingrown toenail. He said, cut it off and move on for Jesus. You know, he <laughs> just gets you going. But... Uh, God spoke to him in the early 90s about this awakening, and he's been praying for it for over 20 years. But he says it's upon us. Okay, Lord. But let's, let's press in. What better, what, what better way to spend our lives going after the times of refreshing that come from the Lord? I prayed, I prayed this morning. I said, Lord, I want to be there for it. I want to be in the middle of it. But I said, if not... Even if, I'm just, even if I'm just a catalyst and I go to my reward and it falls on the next generation, so be it. I'll submit to that. But, Lord, that's not my desire. My desire is to be in the middle of it, be in the middle of the mess and experience your times of refreshing. And so I just call upon the firehouse church, the, the few, the proud. How about the few, the humble? To call out to God for times of refreshing. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it shock the world if, if the third great awakening that reformed America, that a, that, a, that a hot spot wasn't the Bible Belt, but the Pacific Northwest? Amen. Wouldn't that, the eighth, the eighth most unchurched county in the country, Kitsap County, wouldn't it be something if this place was one of the catalysts for those kind of things? Just like Los Angeles was a catalyst for the, for the um, Jesus movement, but uh, Washington was a catalyst for the charismatic movement. What about being? What about redigging some wells of revival in this place? Yeah. Times of refreshing. So will you join me in calling out to God for times of refreshing to come from the Lord and a great awakening to come upon our land. And uh, and 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 Lord, if it happens in Maine, we're we're good with it. 
If it happens in Nebraska, so be it. If it happens in Texas, who would have, nobody would have figured otherwise. But Lord, we want to join that old spiritual. While on others, thou art calling. Do not pass us by. Lord, there's just a few people in this room. It's not like, not like 2,700 people. It's more like 27. But Lord, you started this thing with 12. You changed the world with 12, with 12, well, even less, I mean, one of them bailed. You changed this world. You always seek the few. You always seek the few. And so, Lord, let your fire fall. Let your fire fall, Jesus. Let your fire fall. 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 Let your fire fall and bring times of refreshing. Times of refreshing. Lord, upon the United States of America, upon the state of Washington, upon Kitsap County, upon the city of Bremerton, times of refreshing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. This week, starting Friday, we're going to have our church camping trip up in Paulsbo, but we will have service here next week. Some of the folks are going to be up in Paulsbo, but whoever wants to show up here, I'll be here. We'll preach, we'll pray, we'll have communion, we'll do our stuff. And so, uh, and also next week, we'll be looking at the building on 5th, just a block over. Uh, I think it's 632 is the address. It's the old uh, Union Hall. And so I'll be contacting the realtor this week to...